0: Well now comes to my greatest part of this and I'm so nervous but you know for those of you who know me, you know I like to talk a lot <laughs> <laughs> you married found that I'll just ask them. <laughs> but that's not going to be the case tonight. Um This is a, a very meaningful event for me um, to listening to Peter speak uh, via tapes and what have you over the past couple of years, um, he's had a very strong and profound and positive impact on my sobriety. So it is with the spirit of love and service and deep gratitude that I introduce to you, Peter Ann.
1: My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. (laughs) I'm grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, first things first, thank uh, Kathy and everyone else who put this thing together to have Marion and me here uh, this weekend. It has been uh, really food for the soul for me. Um, Usually when I get to do these things, I see the hotel room, the podium, and the airport and home. And uh, this weekend, I got to get out and uh, visit a little bit. Um, I have no idea where I went, but it was spectacular. <laughs> I live in South Florida, we don't have many mountains. We don't even have a hill in South Florida. Okay. But uh, this was spectacular. And for me, um, my sponsor, Nicky uh, Mussett, is in Denver. Uh, my grand sponsor, Don P., lived in Aurora. And uh, my sponsor before, Mickey, was Mark H., and he lived out here with this other fellow Joe H. So coming here, um, the last time I was here it was to do Fellowship of the Spirit, uh, maybe 10 years ago. So being out here today, um, I felt like I was touching holy ground, just part of the scenery, watching God show off. But there was another layer to this, and uh, kind of touching my lineage to some degree. So I can't thank you enough, nor can Marion, for this... Uh, uh, you guys are probably just used to all of this, but uh, it's really special for me. So I'm grateful to be here, and I get excited when people ask me to go talk about this book and this power called God and our sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, because I will tell you, uh, it is my life. Uh, I don't have a life, and someone with three days, that's not a lame statement, it is just my truth. I don't have a life. It belongs to my God and to Alcoholics Anonymous, and somehow I get to have this. Uh, life of abundance. When Marian shares, she often says, I can't believe this is my life. And today was one of those uh, little aspects next to the day where I was walking around said, I can't believe this is my life. Because there was a time I was living in an abandoned building in lower Manhattan. I had a whole bunch of treatment centers uh, behind me. I knew Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work. I knew my religious community didn't work. I knew the psychiatrist and the psychologist and medication and my family and relationships didn't work. And I really just wanted to die. So I get to do these things pretty often, uh, a whole bunch of weekends. And uh, I get to talk about the solution to what was killing me for so long. The solution to what's killing us, perhaps if we're sitting here with three days or perhaps even 30 years, and we're just wrestling with ourselves. We're wrestling with our isms, and we're not drinking. In the big book on page 51, it says, Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. And that has a very clear, bold statement as to, we're not drinking, but why am I still in turmoil? Why am I still wrestling with the bedevilments and I'm in a place of dis-ease and discomfort, and I'm knocking out 10, 15 meetings a week? And I'm trying to do the meeting makers make it. And I'm finding out I'm not making it. And anytime time I assert my, my power, I find how weak I really am. And it took me a while to find out in my own poverty is my greatest strength, is my greatest amount of humility. And the more strength I try to use, I find out how weak I really am. And all it does is separate me from this power called God. But there was a time when I was out there, um, I tried to do everything I can myself up by the bootstraps and man up and get this right. And uh, that would last about 10 minutes and I'd be drunk again. So my life was changed a whole bunch. And I really had little to do with it. The only thing I did was show up and ask for help. And that really didn't come from me. That came from the G.O.D., the gift of desperation that I was given on the day of my last drink which was June 23rd, 1988, is the day God separated me from alcohol. I'm here tonight as a recovered alcoholic. And uh, I don't say recovered to be special or different from anyone in this room, and certainly not to ruffle any feathers. But here's the first promise in the big book, and hopefully I can live up to that my life certainly feels that way, it sounds that way, I walk that way, Recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And the great thing is, get recovered from the isms that accompany alcoholism. And all I owe is you and God. My first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was going to meetings, sometimes two meetings a day, and not picking up. And almost six months to the day, almost got drunk again. I was really thirsty. And what I quickly found out is that my meetings, although it might work for some, my meetings as sacred as they are. And As much as I get to be here, need to be here, and I love being here, it's not going to keep me sober. It's a band-aid on an open wound. And I was staying sober during those first six months, truly by the grace of God as I am tonight. But at what I've come to experience is that there's a difference between getting the grace of God and experiencing that power which gives us grace. And one is separateness, and it's an unwarranted gift that our Heavenly Father just gives us like we would feed our own children without thinking about it. And one is having a relationship, experiencing oneness with that power called God. And what I'm happy to report in the sacred groups of Alcoholics Anonymous, what we are is taking the drunk with three days and taking them back to God, driving them back to God, and, and getting them unhooked from the ideas, attitudes, and emotions which are killing them, or killing us. And we can have that stuff with multiple years of where we're locked into belief systems, ideas, and attitudes, or quite simply, the thinking mind, which is the greatest predator to hit the planet. Ever. (laughs) It's my thinking that gets me into trouble. It's my thinking that's worried about the future, which is fear, and resentful about the past. It's never present. It can't live in the present. And it wants no part of a G.O.D. God. It's when the ego has free room and board and martinis around the clock. It doesn't want to leave. And yet, and yet we tell newcomers, bring the body and the mind will follow. I don't know about you, but I don't want a newcomer's mind anywhere to stay in Colorado. All night. <laughs> if we think about what the mind does to us from the time we wake up this morning and all the chatter in the head, and yet we keep inviting it back, I did for years. Just curious, before we get going, how many folks drove here alone in their car tonight? Alone in your car is the keyword. alone. Right, <clears throat> okay. So let's think about that for a minute. Because if you think about the drive over here where you claim you were alone in the car, how many people were in your head that you were talking to at the same time? And they're waiting for you to get back in the car while they take the. home. <laughs> This is what I would do all the time. Wake up. You ever know, that as soon as you wake up, you're actually brought into the middle of a conversation that's already happened. And it's on. Game on. And how many times do we get up off our knees if you're one of those like, I who get on knees to pray. You get up off your knees and you were just Moses for about 10 minutes praying. You're not a special child. Everything's cool. And as soon as you get up off your knees, you're right back to, I'm right back to self-reliance. And one of the things I've learned is the past, I would say, four years, three years like this, and uh, 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 being a member of good standing in my church community, it has really come on like steroids. Like just been hitting me right in the soul, God speaking to my heart about the word surrender. And we have How It Works tonight, which talks about steps three and four. But the word surrender. And what I quickly found out is I can't surrender that which I don't know until it shows up. But what kind of willingness do I have to surrender? And while I'm walking around, and I speak for myself walking around, what's the depth of my surrender? Am I willing to be made fundamentally different from the inside out? Or am I just covering my bases? Do I want to change but not that much? Am I the defects to shade down but I don't want them completely removed? Am I willing to take that leap to a place I don't know? What kind of change am I willing to experience? A personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, which means I have to start starving the ego and feeding the spirit. And when I begin to seek this power, call God, and He sends in the cavalry, it's nothing like I had planned. It's nothing what I had thought it was going to look like or feel like. But I chop wood and carry water and go ahead. What sort of surrender am I walking around with? Surrendering my money, my relationships, my career, my my car, my home, where I live. Am I willing to surrender all of that to this power and let Him do what He wants? And the third step prayer says. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. I'm telling God, you take me like the wretch I am and you do whatever you want with it. My hands are off the wheel. Now, most of us are going to show up to the sponsor and say that. And when we leave the house, I'm not
0: doing that. There I am. I just want
1: to stay sober. And that's it. And if if that's your deal, then that's fine. But I'm the guy on page 21, the real alcoholic who needs to not only have the change, but continually change and wake up rather than walking around and be sound asleep. Which means God will prune the tree. A bare tree will bear, bear fruit and no one can eat from that vine. But what God will do is continually prune the tree and bear good fruit. And you'll normally buy my fruit so others can eat from it. If you think about what do we do in Alcoholics Anonymous when a drunk walks in the door? We offer him something or her something to feed the soul. We're not here to loan money, although we might. Or we'll loan a car, although we might. Or we'll perhaps provide someone with employment, although we might. Our primary purpose, stay sober and help another drunk achieve sobriety. We're feeding them soul food. So I need to have a soul full of God in order to transmit that message, which I found in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and over many years has taken me right back to my own community, my church community, where I can say, as I said a moment ago, I'm a member of Good standing. That's what I do. I didn't see that coming 20, almost 29 years ago. So I'm very grateful for the sacred fellowship which was aid on an open wound when I got there. The numbers, the elders in our, in our, in our, in our, in our groups... First they would say, hey kid, nice to meet you. And then they'd know your name and say, sit with us. I felt like I was part of something for the first time. And I would sit with the old times and hopefully whatever they had would rub off on me. And when I walked into a meeting, I felt safety in the numbers. It beat the streets. And when I was lovingly confronted by the elders for inappropriate behavior or inappropriate language, I didn't like to hear that, but I said, finally, someone really cares about me. And I want what you have to offer. And within that fellowship, I found the program of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which really awakened me a day at a time, and really gave me, gave me a relationship with this power called God that I now practice fidelity to my, to my God. I don't cheat on my God by worshipping money. I like money. I don't cheat on my God by wanting nice things. I like nice things. But my God is the first thing and the last thing. It's where I go to three times a day. And so I seek this power with the desperation of a drowning man and try to pass this message on, which means I'm going to experience an awful lot of resistance when we talk about God. It just happens, even in Alcoholics Anonymous. Too much God in that meeting. And how many of our meetings look like what's going on out there in the world? God's become a a four-letter word that's not my intent. My intent is to speak the truth. You're asking me to speak, and I'd rather you accuse me of telling the truth than accuse you of telling a lie. Excuse me. So June 23rd, 1988 was my separation from Outlaw, and uh, that separation, I can say I was surrendered or rescued from that. I had no plans of quitting drinking. I quit many times to get drunk 10 minutes later, or stopping at another work, putting the plug in the jug and everything went back in. Once it popped, that was it. I was drunk. And I continued to get drunk. And in June of 1988, I knew, in the, in the deep down in my soul, that Alcoholics Anonymous was the last place I'm going to go to because I knew it didn't work. And my religious community, I'm not going anywhere near that because my belief systems back then, which occupied my mind, was if you were a man going to any kind of religious service, you were weak and cowardly. If you were a man seeking God, you were weak and cowardly. This is how I believed. This is how I was brought up. So I was really at the crossroads and the bitter end, quite frankly. I was living in an abandoned building in lower Manhattan, an area called Alphabet City. Now, back in the day, it was a sort of spot. From what I understand, they kind of fixed it up. But it wasn't a good spot to be doing anything. And I found this abandoned building, uh, uh, and I used to live in the back of the hallway, and I used to hide behind this old metal radiator. And I was homeless for quite some time. In fact, this time, 1988, I was wandering through the streets with, with a turtleneck and a jacket and blood-stained soil pants and construction boots with big holes in the right... I had no right... Front on the right boot. I mean, that's what I look like. And I hadn't bathed or ate for I don't know how long. And I remember being cold and sweating at the same time, and just roaming through the streets, hustle up some money, get a pint, go back to the hallway and pass out, and come to you and do it all over again. June twenty third, nineteen eighty eight, showed up, and I wasn't thinking, well, today's a good day to go to treatment because the pain is bad. The pain had been bad for a while. The physical pain was killing me. It's torture when your hands are shaking and you're 27, 28 years old. And you need a drink just to still the nerves, as Bill says. And I was drinking and eating a ton of pills along with that if I had extra money, just to shut it down. I remember reading years ago when I first got sober. That the alcoholic and the addict suffers from something called a, a quote, deep in a rage, unquote. And only the power of booze and an opiate would shut down. I said, that's me. I would go from calm to putting my fist to a wall in a second. And who I wanted to hit was me. I despised me. That was the thing. Self-loathing to the max. And on this particular day, I remember, uh, I didn't know it was June 23rd back then. I wasn't keeping abreast of the calendar in current events back then. <laughs> but I got up off the floor and I um, I collapsed. And I began to weep, uncontrollable weeping. And it was the first time that I can recall in many years that I did not want to die. I had tried to end my life once a few years prior. That didn't work. I couldn't get sober. That didn't. I couldn't die and stay sober. Nothing worked. And here I was, June 23, 1988. I remember thinking, I don't want to die, but I needed a drink really bad. And the alkies out here know what I'm talking about. The obsession is driving me and the body is upside down. I need a drink just to breathe right now. And then I can figure out what I'm going to do. I need a drink, literally, to figure out how not to drink anymore.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how dark it is before the dawn is what Bill says. If I get a drink, I'm going to die. And if I don't get a drink, I'm going to die. And it was after the jumping off place. And the only place I can turn to. The only one I can turn to in that moment is the very same power that I had mocked and scoffed and cursed at. Literally. And that was His power called God. And if you're out there, please take me from this. I don't want to die with my words. I'll remember this as long as God keeps me on this journey. Take me from this. I don't want to die. It was the most sincere plea I'll probably have for my entire life. And what I have found out is this. That even when we're studying our steps, and we need to follow the methodology. And even when we're praying to the seventh, or the third step prayer, or the seventh step prayer, or the Lord's prayer, my God is more interested in the intent at which I show up to Him rather than quoting Scripture in verse, rather than remembering to be a big book lawyer. What's the intent? And in June twenty third, nineteen eighty, the intent, not my plan, was as pure as can be because I didn't want to die. And I'm, p- please save my life, and He did. Because within a few moments I was given some sort of wholeness of mind or sanity. A moment of clarity. We can get a moment of clarity, blind drunk, coming into treatment or Alcoholics Anonymous, and we can get a, a moment of clarity when we're in a a while and spinning out of control with uh, sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and fear sprees and thinking sprees and all sorts of sprees because the present moment is just too painful. I need something or someone to fill up the hole in the soul right now, and I emerge remorse with the firm resolution I'm not going to do that anymore. And the wheels come off the bus and go back to doing the same thing again. I surrender. Hmm? God made me very teachable and gave me a force feeding of humility and got my attention. Even now, with a few years sober, and I'm hurting, and something is painful, that thing, there's still a part of me that says, well, don't surrender yet. Let's figure it out.
0: (laughs) and as soon
1: as I get into it I'll figure this out what I need to do I'm back into having a step one problem and total self-reliance my books and self-reliance did not work or maybe I get a pocket full of money and say well look at this I got some money this is great I got just enough money not to need God anymore it's a subtle foe it just slips right in there so I need to be acutely aware. Am I surrendering? Am I talking to God? Am I communing with God? We get lots of communication here. We have lots of books that communicate thoughts to us. We talk about God. We communicate with each other. My job is to go commune, go in, even while I'm busy at work, walking the walk with God, the walk with God, while I'm chopping wood and carrying wood. Hmm? But well, here I was, June 23rd, 19. please take me from this, I don't want to die, and I was given wholeness of mind, and what I did with that moment was just follow directions. What I got was indescribably wonderful, and if you have three days, this isn't like, you know, black magic or anything, this is what truly happened to me, because God will cut through all the noise, and perform the indeed miraculous, where words don't make sense in trying to explain it. They fall way short. <coughs> But in this moment of pleading with this power to take me from this, I don't want to die, I get this whisper in this ear, my left ear, as if someone leaned over and just whispered something in my ear is the best way to explain it. Enough, I have other work for you to do. And I said, oh my God, I just heard a voice in this ear, enough, I have other work for you to do. I'm dying what I've lost my mind, and I remember what people in AA said, and the people with the H&I commitments coming to treat me and told me that you're going to get to a place, you're going to get so drunk, you, your brain's going to get something called wet brain, and you're going to start to hear things and see things and dribble all over you, and I just heard a voice this is the beginning of the end, I'm really dying, I just heard someone whisper in my voice, oh my God, I'm out of my mind i was very alarmed here's the good news, I was completely out of my mind and I pray my mind never ever returns and I pray your mind just stays away from you because only when I'm out of my mind can I hear that kind of voice and at the beginning it's foreign that voice, that godly voice that intuitiveness our book talks about that little thing that says give Mary a call, give Joe a call let's call the sponsor go help that guy with three days just that little voice and at the beginning we usually go right past it Because it's a foreign voice. But God's pursuing me, pursuing us, and going to any lengths to have a relationship with us, and will remove things from our life. And I interpret painful things as bad, like God just sent me the trials of Job for some reason, and all he's looking to do is say, hey, I need your attention now. This is me. And sometimes we'll call the sponsor. and sponsor just follow directions. But here I was in the back of an abandoned building. There was no sponsor, there was no AA. It was me, my alcohols, and, and this guy who just whispered in my voice called God. I didn't know it was God. That particular day I was given a gift, my first G-O-D. It's called the Gift of Desperation, the G-O-D. It will beat <laughs> me into a state of reasonableness. And it will do, us, do it to us while we're sober. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. God's not a respecter of many. Does I like you more than you? But He will get my attention. I remember I was coming out of out of a divorce. Uh, I was married about ten years, and I got about twelve years in sobriety. And I get divorced, and I got married. You know, one-time marriage. That's it. Forever. House with the white picket fence. Everything's good now. And I get divorced and she took the house with the white picket fence the cars, the money. <laughs> and I'm flat and broke, I'm out of work, and I'm saying, my God, my God, what did I do to deserve this? And in that moment, I surrendered my life again and I called Mark, who was my sponsor at the time, and he says, money, we need to go to the work again. That's not the answer I wanted to hear. The Calvary was not what I thought and that's what I began and I quickly saw as I'm going through the work again how attached I got to my relationship makes me my new car is me the house that I bought is me the money I have in my checking account is me and none of that is me God got my attention and my Heavenly Father will remove things from my life as He has three years to get my attention to have a relationship with me when I look back on it I didn't like it, but I can say on this side of the fence, thank God He did. I can't see trouble coming. I can't see the drink inching closer. I can't see bedoublemings next door, but God can. And I need to continue to seek this power at any length. My dad found me on June 23rd, 1988. He got out of the car. He called my name. First thing I told him, in the condition I was, I weighed about 130 pounds, by the way. Walking around with hep C, I'm urinating blood, I got blood-stained, filthy clothes on, dehydrated, I'm dying, literally in front of my dad's eyes. I have no idea what that's like to see your firstborn dying of an alcohol addiction right in front of you. And when he called my name, the first thing I said was, Dad, I'm okay, I'm I'm fine. (laughs) And when he got closer, I collapsed. And he held me up. And he kept repeating as he's holding me, like a father would hold his son. It was the prodigal son, quite frankly. The story of the prodigal son. And he kept saying, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son. Almost like a mantra, over and over and over again. And my dad is not a God guy but God kind of ripped us out of the root of the, 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 the soil we were in and planted us in new soil, as our big book talks about. It was the beginning of a new life for both of us, and at the moment it felt awfully painful for the both of us. I had no idea the road we were going to just step onto. It was called healing and recovery and forgiveness and amends. It was called Alcoholics Anonymous. And the loving God was orchestrating the whole thing. That's why often now I don't like feeling pain. None of us do. We, some of us can walk around like, you know, I'm the baddest guy in the neighborhood, but don't hurt me because I'll crumble. I don't like pain. And what I do with pain is interpreted as a something bad. God is punishing me, and all he's doing is removing. And thank God for God, huh? I landed in my seventh treatment center. And I will tell you, after all of this, about ten days into my seventh treatment center, I got thirsty again. I remember thinking, I need a drink. I can't go into this group and talk about my feelings and my inner child and my dysfunction. <laughs> I need a drink first and I'll go and I'll run the group it. I'm drunk. <laughs> no. I, I remember thinking, you know, I don't, I don't even drink to get drunk. At the end I was drinking to breathe, just to get up off the floor, just to function. I need a drink before I do anything. And here I am in a treatment about 10 days or so, and I need a drink. I really need a drink. I'm having horrible post-acute withdrawal stuff going on, and I just know if I can get liquor and whiskey in me, I'll be okay. And if I can get a couple of pills on top of that, I'll run the whole facility. (laughs) I'm in this business, the treatment center business, for a long time, and I see me and so many of these clients when they show up. And it's kind of like the parent. If you have children, and they try to pull a quick one on you, and you think, you know, I did the same thing to my parents. This doesn't work. And the clients I see them do, and I see me all these young kids. I didn't get drunk. Thank the good Lord. It was grace. And they sent me off to Minnesota. And I thought I was going for just a little bit further treatment, a little extra care, uh, aftercare stuff. And I went up and put me in Minnesota. It turned out to be almost a year before I was even allowed back in the state of New York. I lived out there for a while. I did more treatment in this halfway house, in this three-quarter house, and, and all of this stuff. But during that journey, <laughs> yeah, during that journey, I was brought to a meeting in, at the time, I believe it was Bloomington, Minnesota, called the Three Legacies meeting. Three Legacies meeting met on a Friday night. There was about three, four hundred people at this meeting, and they were dressed. The greeters were dressed. The coffee maker was dressed. The people at the podium were dressed. And they all had these A.A. smiles, which kind of made me a little paranoid when I walked in the door. I'm used to walking with a different type of folks. These women had jobs, legitimate jobs. And the men had careers, and, and they, would, they were just members in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the literature table was like a mile long, and they were handing me literature. and they and pledging here, and I just, I, what do I do here? And I sat in the back of the room, but I heard the message. And these good folks invited me into their home. They took me to the diner after the meeting, and they fed me, and they took good care of me. And it was only because I was another drunk, and I saw with my eyes the love of this fellowship, the band-aid on an open wound. But I heard a message that was different. I heard a message that was clear, precise, exact, and specific. specific, And it came from the big book, Alcoholics and Others. Now if the big book upsets you, that's not my intent. I didn't come here to do that. But if you haven't done the book, and you have some contempt, maybe we need to take a look at that. 164 pages that have remained unchanged. This is the AA message, it says in the basic text, uh, the third edition. It's a set of spiritual principles that haven't changed because they work. They don't change with the times. scripture is gonna change because it's 2017. It just is what it is. It's work. It, it, it's the word. And so my job was to, to change according to that, not that change for me. And that's what these men and women showed me. And somehow I got here tonight... Uh, almost so so over 29 years. Go figure. The whole spiritual walk doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to a thinking mind. It doesn't make sense to logic. We read uh, uh, one of the readings before. Why we were chosen? Absolutely no sense. Why would God choose another drunk to go talk to another drunk when we got authors out there? We go to Barnes and Nobles. We got racks of spiritual literature. How to get sober? How to stay spiritual? How to find God? It just goes on and on and on. They're making millions, and I'm dying. And then I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and God says another drunk who's in the same whole as I was, and says, i know the way out. I know you're afraid right now. I can see your ego blossoming again. I know you're resentful. I know the embarrassment and humiliation. I've been there. Grab my hand, I'll pull you out. We do it every day. And only God infinite. Wisdom would see something like that. The identification of one drunk with another. I get to travel to many places to do this. When I get to the airport, there's see, somebody with an AA sign, and in two minutes we know each other. I get to a city I've never been to, I don't know anyone in the hotel, but I walk into the conference room and I know everybody in the and they know me. And as soon as I say or you say I'm alcoholic, gotcha. Different parts of the globe, different stories, but with the same. Connectedness rather than separateness. And that is a very special thing that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need to be a certain color in a certain financial bracket to walk through that door. Quite frankly, you know how we get through the... How, how, if anyone wants to know, how do you get to speak? Someone asked me that earlier. How do you get to speak? What I want to tell them is just completely wreck your life.
0: <laughs> I love
1: when people tell me stories I love your story. You mean how I destroyed everything? LAUGHTER this is the only place on the map that I can tell you about the most terrible, awful, disgusting things I've done. And you say, here's my number. Give me a call.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I picked up a drink. Uh, I was 14 years old. Um, my dad was uh, a tough guy. legitimately the, the alpha male. The street guy from South Brooklyn, if anyone's ever seen The Sopranos, it was written about my dad. I mean, get um, this is what I grew up with. And he thought playing sports, I was a musician, was for sissies, go be a real man. And so we, we didn't get along. I was just so afraid of this guy. My mom was one of us. My mom was alcoholic and addicted to value. Uh, institution after institution, suicide attempt after suicide attempt. You know, cleaning her up and picking her up putting her on the couch or trying to get her into bed before dad got home and this was a daily occurrence and after a while when things like that get matter of fact you realize how sick you really become our big book says years of living with an alcoholic will make any child a wife neurotic the whole family's become ill I didn't know that fact that you would. mom's drunk, you pick her up, put her away before dad gets home hide your pills, hide the whiskey you know, you're 8, 9, 10 and doing this And right before uh, my 14th birthday, or thereabouts, uh, January 1974, my mom finally committed suicide, and uh, my whole life split apart. I was left with this guy who was larger than life, I called him Dad, cunning, baffling, and powerful. I had no idea how to operate around this guy. And in a sense, figuratively speaking, I told God I don't need you anymore. And I was cast into this world of self-reliance, which meant the external world now began to own me. It was about getting the money, getting the relationship, looking good all the time, sounding good all the time, never show weakness, don't cry, and went on ad infinitum, external conditions, manage them, I'll be okay. And the more I managed them, I was not okay. But that's what you do. And I'm 14 and my friends are drinking, the older guys are drinking cold 45 beer, hanging out on the street corner. When I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from originally, you had to belong to a group of guys a crew. We hung out in schoolyards, we hung out on corners and we drank. The older guys drank, they were like 16, 17, they were men to me. And cold 45 Beer was making its rounds and I took a few pops, nothing happened, I took a few more pops and a few more and something indescribably wonderful began to happen to me. I started to feel good, I I started to feel nice, I was finally breathing again. I never experienced that kind of comfort. There were a lot of demons I was wrestling with, the shame and embarrassment of being the only kid in the neighborhood whose mom committed suicide. I couldn't tell everyone how I disliked my dad so much we don't get along. I certainly could tell anyone ages 8 to 10 I was being sexually molested. Who did you talk to? But then I got drunk. On this one Saturday night, my first drunk. And all of that was removed. Bill says it best. Three words. I have arrived. I showed up. My friends became the greatest guys. The girls got prettier. I got taller and better looking. I was part of life at last. It was a great thing. Don't pull the plug on this. (laughs) <laughs> because a little after midnight they started to leave and I'm 14, mind you, I'm going, don't end don't spoil this it's the first time I feel okay nothing hurts right now I don't get and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not trying to split the room I don't get some of the information we give some of our newcomers hey, live life on life's terms I just described how I try to do life on life's terms that doesn't change because I'm sober a few years life on life's terms, I need a double vodka just to get out the door and I need more external stuff. I need more stuff to do life by life. Because for me as an alcohol, life hurts. It's painful. I have an ego. I'm hypersensitive. I'm fear-based, insecure. I got this predator the mine who's just looking to snatch me up at any minute and hijack me. Life hurts. Maybe you can identify with this. I walk in, I have a suit on. Maybe someone says, nice suit. Giving me a compliment, my mind goes, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Said, I look okay. You sure? just said, I don't like the tone in which he addressed this. And you know what? I'll go home around two o'clock and i to wake up and go. What the hell do you mean by that? <laughs> hey, I did uh, a plate at this meeting called Gopher State Roundup in, in Minnesota. We got about seven, eight thousand people there. And they asked me to be the Saturday keynote, and I finished the talk. And the line went forever. The line, line went back to St. Paul. People were that gracious. The next meeting was starting at 10 o'clock. They had to push us outside. Everyone was so cordial and friendly. Great talk. We love you. Please come back. Just wonderful. We're going to dinner after the meeting. I'm crossing the threshold from the lobby into the street. And I hear, hey, Pete. Guy Paul calls me over. And he says, that was an interesting talk. That's AA code for I didn't like your talk. <laughs> Then he says, I never heard New Age AA before. (laughs) If someone else is walking in a room, I, I don't know what that means. Okay, so I leave. Dinner, up to my hotel room, the plane back home to New Jersey, and for the next two weeks, I got this guy attached to my hip. What did he mean by that? I discounted all the wonderful comments and that guy followed me for two weeks. And I kept thinking I gotta get back there next year and change the entire talk to please
0: one guy.
1: And I'm trying to do life on life's terms. It just doesn't work. You know, the boss walks by and forgets to say hello. I'm getting fired, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had this young fellow to sponsor me. And uh, we saw so about here I met the AA girlfriend. And they're in love. She loves him. He loves her. And all this stuff. And he called me one day. He was really dejected. He says, I, I think she found somebody else. I says, why? He said, well, I wanted to make love last night. And she fell asleep on me. And I said... We'll call him Joe. Joe, you've been telling me you've been making love to this woman every single day for the last two months. The poor girl was tired. (laughs) But as an alcoholic, he said one night, "It's it. It's over." (laughs) I identify with that guy. The problem was I was getting drunk somewhere. When I got back from Minnesota after living almost a year out there, I was brought to uh, this group called the Free Spirit Group, and I was introduced to this book once again. When I got into my first treatment center, I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. Got drunk at 14, I started to need more. Experienced a phenomenal craving, I didn't know that. The obsession, You didn't know anything about that. Whoever heard of spiritual malady? I just knew I didn't want the party to end. There was no more partying quickly. It was like dependence upon alcohol and the juice that came with it. First rehab, second rehab, third rehab, fourth rehab, fifth rehab. There was no fun. I wasn't partying. This was drinking to live. My fifth treatment center, I was up there for nine weeks and back in the day it was a 28-day model. They kept you in the insurance company said, 28 days, You'll go, go home. By the way, make any meetings. My fifth treatment center, the therapist got together and they said, you can't go home. Not with your track record. So what they did, I didn't really understand what they were telling me then, but in the business I know what they're doing. I knew what they did. They wrote up a bunch of things on something called the biopsychosocial which was me, my God, my rap sheet, of all my psychosis, now it was, I was an alcoholic, but they wrote up a lot of other stuff so I can stay longer because the insurance company would say this guy is really sick, keep him longer. And that's what they did, they held me for nine weeks. And after nine weeks of being in my treatment center, I looked pretty healthy. I put on some weight, I was starting to sleep, I was going to the gym, exercising, paying attention to group, and they told me my discharge date was coming up on the following Saturday. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty good. I did my time. And I haven't even been thinking about drinking for the last week or so. And on that Saturday, they discharged me. And I walked off, uh, walked out of there. As Bill said, the goose hung high. Until I hit Sunrise Highway in Amityville, Long Island. And what I was met with was me and my alcoholism. Very often we say, we learn about this in 3 and 4, very often we say how I need to find myself. When the actuality we got to be rid of self. And when I want to find myself, I'm actually looking for the wrong guy anyway. I'm looking for for some really nice guy who just got mixed up a little bit. I'm not a nice guy. I've been walking around for years with a case of mistaken identity. And one of the great things Alcoholics Anonymous allows me to do is shows me how to pray to unhook the shackles which have kept me in bondage of me for so long. I was met with me as soon as I hit the street, and the voices started to chatter a thousand voices. the insecurities, the inadequacy I'm sweating again, I'm not hungry anymore I can't eat, I can't sleep I'm tossing and turning and even to have a sentence with somebody in a conversation I would stammer and just be, I gotta get out of here I need a drink and I suffered white knuckle sobriety for two days Saturday and Sunday and on Monday morning I was in front of my liquor store the liquor store I'd always go to in downtown Brooklyn and it was early in the morning he wasn't open yet and this is the power of the alcoholic mind My body did not need a drink after nine weeks of being in treatment. There was no craving going on. But my mind said, "Yay, we need a drink. This is too painful. So it felt like there was craving going on. And I'm pacing back and forth, and I'm fidgeting, and my legs are shaking, and my head is sweating, and I really, I really, I really need a drink. And I could feel the pain in my gut. I can't wait for the liquor store guy to open so I can get in there. He did, it. put my money under the counter, the glass partition. I got a pint, cracked a seal, it went down. You know what? I finished off the pint. It worked. It worked. I was comfortable, I was breathing. The sweating stopped, the voice had slowed down, the anxiety went away, it worked. That's why I drink, but I'm also alcoholic, which meant I had to get the second pint. I didn't go home the next weekend, I needed the second pint. I had some money, got the second pint, finished, I'll never forget it, now I'm drunk. And as the big book says, thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim, for Pete Because once I did that, I began to hustle out money because now I'm out of money. And I gathered up some money, got another pint and went into the projects to get pills because then I need pills to push me down as far as I can go because life hurts now. I'm a raw nerve. I got no juice in me. I discounted all the pain and misery and all of it of five treatment centers and all the humiliation and degradation to do it just one more time and I won't get bit. And I got hijacked, which is what happens to us. And it can happen in the spring as well. <clears throat> I lasted a day and a half at my sixth treatment center. And then June 23rd, 1988, showed up. And I was brought to the Free Spirit Group by someone who knew me. He's we going to take you to this group called the Free Spirit Group in Brooklyn. An uh, area called Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Anyone ever seen Saturday Night with John Travolta? That's Bensonhurst, I don't drink anymore, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) My only requirement for membership there is a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry. We had guys in that group who changed how it works and uh, how you doing. Um, (laughs) um, And my first teacher showed up, my first sponsor. And we began in this book. And he showed me on the title page, which talks about the word recover, the first promise in the big book. And little by slowly, I began to walk through the book. Now, I had been through seven treatment centers. And I sat in a lot of the groups, but I really didn't know what I suffered from. I knew once I drink, I can't stop, but why do we keep returning to that which is killing me? Why do we keep doing that while we're sober, returning to that which is killing us? Because the mind still owns me. It uses me. It's a great servant, but a terrible master. It owns me. My mind says something, and I say, okay, you're right. I thought of it, it must be right. And it won't hurt me this time, you're right. I can have a taste, a couple of bumps, just a little something. You guys have legalized marijuana out here.
0: <laughs> I wonder how many
1: alcoholics say, well, it's legal, I can take a couple of pokes, no big deal. And wind up back in the cook or whatever, with back in the drink, and, and, and here we go again. I was a pretty junk guy, and I start to learn what I suffer from a threefold illness there are a lot of things in my life a lot of issues a lot of tragedy a lot of drama and many of us have that I don't want to discount any kind of abuse emotional, physical and sexual abuse because some of us have it we can write books on it it's been so painful for us some of us have lost children or parents and it just goes on it's very powerful stuff and we seek outside people to help us along with that but something happened to me in this book. And I learned what I suffer from. The three things. Mental obsession, phenomenon called craving, and this thing called the spiritual malware. The sense of a disconnection between me and God. I was looking for a connection with something in the bottom of a whiskey bottle. That just rightness, that okayness. And I got it. Many times I caught lightning in the bottom of that bottle. Or somewhere in that pint. I was okay again. Quickly to go away. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you tell me to do a path I never walked before in this place I don't know anything about and to experience a God I know nothing about. And the only thing that allowed me to chop wood and carry water and put one foot in front of the other was the passion or that burning that we all have inside of us. It's in our DNA to know rightness with our Creator. We all got it whether we want to admit it or not. It's in the DNA. God gave us that the day we were born. And I go down a lot of dark alleys to get that. And it works for a while. But then it doesn't work anymore, I'll try it again. I'll double up on it. And at the end, I'm standing in me and my wreckage. And I still say, I'm not ready for you. Until we're at the jumping off place. So they began to explain to me what I suffer from. And I saw that the first 43 pages of my big book tells me about step one. And my first step tells a guy like me that I'm going to drink, period, non-negotiable. My illness doesn't care. I get to do this and I'm sober a few years and I sponsor a bunch of men. It doesn't care. It's not interested in that. It's got one goal hijacking. And it'll start with different things showing up and little by little getting away from this power which keeps me sober. That's called current unmanageability. It's all over page 52 in the Bedevil minutes. What's that currently look like? Hmm? I get up at 7 in the morning perhaps and go to bed at 11 o'clock at night and I spend some time in the morning with God I spend some time at night with God. The rest of the day, how much time am I spending with God? I'm in self-reliance. Just going out there and bouncing around like a ball in a pinball machine. Or am I spending time with God? Any relationship. You need to spend time with that person. Share transparency. That relationship to, 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 to flourish. And when somebody's not listening to you or not spending time with you, you start to lose interest and get away. When I don't spend time with God, He's very interested in me, but I'm not interested anymore. So I learned about that. Step one tells me I'm drinking. And the unmanageability, essence of that in the step one is that I'm going to drink and I don't even know what the day looks like when it shows up, but bang, oh, I'm drunk again. Just like that. Because the same way I go forwards through the steps, I will go backwards through the steps. Prayer meditations out the window. I'm praying in the car on the way to work. I don't even care about people I sponsor. I I have a sponsor name only, defects a character, running the show, turning it over. What for? I'm God. As long as I got money, I'm good. As long as everyone thinks I'm okay, I'm good. Insane thoughts. Here comes freezing, and I'm drunk. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And step two is appointed to the solution for me. That I will get to this place of sanity, wholeness of mind, truth, or oh God. And in that place, my mind's not telling me to drink because of my spiritual condition. I'm working out in the spiritual gym. And I get spiritual muscles. And when that stuff happens, I transcend all of this. Not AA, but I transcend all of this. This thing that I do called life. And we enter the world of the spirit. That mind is not telling me a drink looks good. I've done a bunch of 12-step calls. The drink never looked good. I'm not running away from it. not running to a place in the position of neutrality, safe and protected. Hmm? If my mind's not telling me to drink, there's no one going in my body, which means there's no craving going on. And it all hinges, hinges, and it's a delicate relationship. God. And how come some of, some of our meetings, we hide God from a newcomer? They're bleeding out. Many of us who have not died from one wound will die from a thousand cuts. And we you got a newcomer coming here bleeding out, don't give him the big book yet. not ready for God. Make 90 meetings in 90 days. He may not make it till midnight. Start working with him tonight. Get him going. Let's just crack the egg open because once we crack that, it's the only place God's light can shine through. And if it's cracked, let's open it up some more. Because that guy or that woman is going to be sponsoring someone in a month or two. If they get this information. Hmm? So I saw step two is a pointer to the solution. And the chapter of agnostics really opens this up for us. Where to find God, how to find God, and why to find God. I'm looking out there, I'm looking in relationships, I'm looking in money, I'm looking in palm, prestige, property, all of that stuff. And all I had to do was go in the inward journey. Oh, who thought of that one? That the great reality is near, that God walks with you. And the drunk on the rubber has just as much God in him or her as we got here tonight. Just not connected yet. That God is a whiskey bottle. But they might be moving close and be able to sponsor me. They might be my sponsor in a couple of months. So I hold on to my chair tightly. huh? And then we get to how it works. And I don't know how many meetings you've been to where somebody says, I don't know how it works, but I know it does. I want to scream out page 58.
0: says, how it works.
1: (laughs) It says, rarely have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path. That's how we should be right (laughs) Rarely Really have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path? It says those who do not recover our people cannot or will not completely give themselves to our simple program. Completely, all in. With the same passion and drive I did to get a drink, I was all in, thorough, all in. Count your money, not twenty bucks. I got this much to buy. That's how I counted my money. Everything revolved around the whiskey. Everything involved around pills. There was nothing else that mattered but that. I need to take Dr. Bobson, take half of that, and we'll be okay. I get to the third step with my sponsor. And I'm about to do this third step prayer. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I mean, I read it. I did some assignments on it. I didn't understand the depth of what they were talking about. It says, Rarely have we seen a person fail. Fail at what? God consciousness, sobriety, who has thoroughly followed our path. What path? Decision three (laughs) steps, four through nine. The path to freedom. How free do we want to be? If I'm experiencing freedom tonight, do I want to get freer? I don't know about you, but if I was drunk tonight, God forbid, I'm going to look to get drunker. And if I'm in bondage tonight, Why? Why am I sitting in a place, of, I mean, three days I get it, a few months I get it. I don't mean that as a condescending remark, we get it. But you don't need to be there. Because with three days or a month, in a month or two, you could be through the work, experience some sort of shifting consciousness, some sort of awakening, and be sitting down with the newcomer, taking them through the first few steps too. God doesn't say you need a year of more sobriety to carry the message to give you say to one of my kids. You're sober, you're awake, go to work. That's why we got sober. That's why God got me sober. Not to do this. This is part of being sober. But it's as, 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 as Sam she makes says, stand by the door and watch. Get the new ones. Get the lost sheep. Bring them home to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why we were chosen. Because if they call the therapist... It's fifty for 50 minutes and they'll fit you in. Yeah. If you got treatment, you want go to treatment, you've got good insurance or a lot of money. I know I'm in the business. You call at AA, they say, well, I'm on my way. I'll come get you. Those who do not recover are people, cannot, or will not completely give themselves to the simple program. Usually men and women are constitutional, incapable of being honest with themselves. They're not only talking about cash register, honest. Honest with my (coughs) truth. My truth is I'm alcoholic. That's my truth. I need to go to the truth to get free. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. We have a lot of time. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. I always beg the question, it begs the question, what is the truth? Who is this truth guy? This powerful God is the truth. No God, you'll get free. How desperate are you? It says they're naturally capable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. It's a command. Their chances are less than average. are Those two suffer from grave emotional mental disorders, but many of them do have the capacity to be honest. Um, what's my grave emotional mental disorder? I thought I didn't have any. When I got sober, my, my sponsor asked me that question. I thought it was for people who had, you know, some sort of psych condition those poor unfortunates as I kind of look down. And my sponsor says, you have a grave emotional mental disorder. You're an alcoholic.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you will continue to go back to that which is killing you, even though you don't want to. You continue to destroy your life. That's a grave emotional mental disorder. And no power within you is going to get that. Only the power can get you free. Huh? Cap- the capacity to be honest get an 8-ounce glass of water, and you put it on this, on this podium, and come back next year. That water is kind of soiled now. You can't drink it. It's dirty. It's murky. The chemistry the glass is fine just a year older. And the process of recovery is about pouring out or emptying out and refilling. The process of recovery is about subtraction, never addition. So I need to remove. And that's what they're talking about. We have the capacity to be filled with this power called God. Capacity to be filled with recovery and get recovered. We just have to empty out all the stuff that's in the way. This four through 9. Self or self-centered. They say, that is the root of my troubles. I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. It's all about me. Even when I'm being kind, it's about me. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? It's how I operate.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you ever get dressed? Like, like, I like getting nice clothes and Marion gets me nice clothes. I like getting dressed because I'm not in the hallway anymore. That's still very real to me. I'm not in the hallway have clean clothes on. And very often I get dressed like, even for work. I like getting dressed. But you ever get dressed because you know they're going to be there and I have to look good for them? And now you're in a frenzy? And if no one was there, you wouldn't care? That's called bondage. That's that mind again. Just kind of getting in. Now you walk in and you're totally self-sensitive, self-seeking. I thought no one knows my new outfit. What's wrong with them? I hate them all.
0: <laughs>
1: or they'll say, My suit, and I say, Uh oh, here we go.
0: <laughs>
1: so I took a look at that. Page 62 describes me. Page 62, the bottom of 62 into 63 is the hope that it'll be less and less about me and more and more what it can contribute to life. That he's the father, I'm the child, he's the employer, I'm the employee. He's director, he's the principal, I'm the agent. What does the agent do? Represents the principal. In sports, all these players have agents. They go on and represent the principal. Our book tells us, on page 62 and 63, we're about to represent God wherever we go. How am I doing with that? They're giving us a huge task. God's giving us a huge task, but we'll load up the tool belt to go uh, complete the task. I just need to have everything in place. Know me, that's when everything's in place. When I don't show up, everything's going great. I don't mean literally not showing up, but me, that guy. So 62 to 63 is really the third step, the considerations. We have a third step prayer, beautiful prayer. And if you never heard the third step prayer and you hit your knees and say, Father, please, I'll do anything to know you and get right, good enough. Because it says the wording was, of course, quite optional. But we have a beautiful third step prayer. And one of the assignments I've always done, per my sponsors, was write out the prayer word for word, and then write out what it means to me. So it becomes internalized, so the book becomes who I be. And I'm not picking people off with, armed, with an armored tank anymore. But I'm surrendering everything to God. But that decision is completely if I don't take action. And how I do this third step prayer, we, first all, we hit on knees, we hold hands, we do the third step prayer. There's no amen at the end of the third step prayer, by the way, because we're about to launch out to cause a course of vigorous action. It's a body of work. Four, five, six, and seven. When we complete seven, there's the amen. We're out of the searching into the going out and making the men's part. Surrender, 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 and after the third step prayer, get up off my knees, and my sponsor gives me instructions on what to do for four. The, the fact finding, the fearless searching, the fearless, fearless searching, and moral inventory going in and cleaning out what's in the way. And it kind of looks like this: if we took someone outside, shut the lights, and rearranged the chairs, and put them in a blindfold, and says, "Have a seat in front," they're going to trip and fall and get hurt. And they'll do it again, and again, and again, and again. Now we're taking them to the emergency room. And they insist on doing it. And what God does is flick on the lights, take the blinder off, grab us by the hand, and walk in and say, this is the mess. I'm going to remove everything you just have to do the work. And so what I would do is write this four-column inventory on people I was resentful with, principles and institutions, fear and sex, but I needed to pray in order to be searching fearless and more. In fact, I remember writing a prayer across the top of the page. God, please allow me to be searching fearless and moral because on my own I won't do that. I don't have the endurance to do that. I won't have the commitment or the honesty. I don't have that in me. But God will feed that, will give that, will feed it to me. And we watch the pen start to move. It becomes a spiritual translator. Resentment, cause, effects. Where am I at fault? For the first time in my life, I looked at column four, my inventory, not yours. Even though people did terrible things to me, the books says disregard what they did entirely. That person who was abusing me sexually between ages about eight to ten, I got to the fourth column and said, "Where am I at fault?" Self-acceptance, so seeking fright. I was eight. The book screwed up, and I called my sponsor. And we're from any of the tears. And he said this, How long have you been hating that man? And I said to his name was Tony. He says, Tony, if he turned a corner right now, I'd kill him. He said that's gonna get you drunk. There's your any lens right now. You don't need to have a relationship with him. You don't have to be in the same room with him. But you must get to a place of forgiveness. Because if you don't, it's gonna kill you. They raised the bar to the roof now. Here's an any lens. That did not taste good. But as long as I was in a place of justifying hate, and it was easy to justify, super easy, the hate was seductive. Anyone would do this. But I get drunk on that. This road to God is not always butterflies and angels and hops playing in the background. Oh, we'll get that. But sometimes it's crawling through a jungle. And you don't know what's on the other side. But I'm crawling, I'm going in. And what comes out on the other side is freedom. If I continue to hate that man, you would have a different speaker here tonight, and I'd be drunk or an in institution, perhaps dead. I don't know. But I crawl through that. Even I forgive, no, I don't. I forgive, no, I don't. <laughs> And little by slowly, I was able to stand free of my own wreckage, if you will. What's the price for freedom? Any price. And so I looked at that fourth column, the selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened, over and over and over again with all the people. Mom, my dad, my brothers, my grandpa, everything. Everyone. Principles, ideas, institutions, medical community, they didn't save mom. My religious community didn't save mom. Treatment centers, they charge. Police department, they almost left my dad dead one time. They almost beat my dad to death. IRS, they want my money. The government, at the time I remember growing up with the Vietnam War all over the place. Veterans not getting treated properly, we're at war. Government, resentment, all this. And I'm, I'm talking about resentment you can bite into. And then I did fear and sex. My conduct. And it was on paper. God pushed and God pushed and God pushed. And i got to get out of it because we're running out of time. But I remember um, my first inventory. I went from living in an abandoned building. And I have my first apartment, my first studio apartment. And I had it, I have it now. It showed up after it was in storage. I th- it was lost. A friend of mine had it. My dad had it. It was a bookshelf. And it was in my first apartment and it was my desk. And it had this old broken lamp that someone gave me in this little studio apartment. And I remember sitting at this desk with the chair someone gave me. This is where I was when I started. And I can peek out the window and in Bay Ridge Brooklyn we have the Verrazano Bridge. And I can see a little piece of the light on the top of the bridge flickering. I know it sounds silly, but I felt like I was with God. He's blinking just, you're going to be okay. When you knew these things, you're like just, I'm going to be okay. I don't know how. And I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing. And my my front door had AA bumper stickers on it. I had a Bible. I had a big hook. I had a a cross above the door of a cabin. And I I remember sleeping in a sleeping bag the first night. But I was a part of our Anonymous And so then I'm writing this inventory. And I got it done. And I couldn't believe that I was able to do something that you had asked me to do. And when I look back on that inventory, my first inventory, I was experiencing freedom in the writing. I was always so used to get to the destination, you get free. In the journey, I was experiencing freedom from bondage. And for the first time, I was, God, if you're out there, I'm trusting you, let's put this out pain. And it was done. I've done lots of inventory, go to work at least once a year. And then I get to share that stuff. And I get to do this walk with Mary. I went out to give a talk in Bellingham, Washington. I was living in, Spencer, a guy out there was living in New Jersey, go to do an AA talk, and she shows up. And my life changed again. We were friends, and now we're engaged to be married. My dad loves her and he hates everybody, so this is...
0: <laughs>
1: and I get to share this with, with all of you. So I'm blessed. And in closing I will say this, when we meditate sometimes, as Mary says, God will put His uh, talk to your heart, put something on your heart. And the only thing God wants is our soul, which is everything. And I gave God my soul and he gave me a life. He gave me a life and he gave me purpose. I gave him my drunkenness, he gave me sobriety, he gave me my sim- simpleness, he gave me forgiveness. And God gave me Alcoholics Anonymous. So I always hope to pass this on with the same love and gratitude that you give to me every time I walk in the door of the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for just a great time out here in Colorado. God bless, that's all I got, peace.